0: This morning's message is going to be a little different from the typical sermon in which we do expository uh, study of God's Word. Um, I would not really even consider it a sermon per se. Basically, it's a message which was shared with the pastoral team at our planning retreat in late October. Um, Having heard it the team thought it would be appropriate to share it with the entire church. So Pastor Billy asked if I could do that this morning. Uh, It is a message which is meant really primarily for the leaders of the church but we think it will certainly benefit the whole church because as Christians we are all called to walk in humility as we serve one another and serve in the church in various capacities. The title of the message is this, um, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And we could consider that really the main point of the message as well. The key passages of scriptures which are referenced in the message is Isaiah six, one through seven, and 2nd uh, Chronicles 26, and you'll, you'll see why those two passages were, uh, as we get into the, the message. But other passages of scripture will be, re- uh, will be referenced as well, such as Romans 12, uh, Second Corinthians 4. And I will also be reading a couple excerpts from Sinclair Ferguson's book, Devoted to God's Church. About a year ago, I began reading through this book, devoted to God's Church by Sinclair Ferguson. I started around January, or February thereabouts, of last year, and was just very slowly making my way through the book. Probably around March, I was reading through the chapter on worship, it's chapter five, In this chapter, he introduces the story about Isaiah and the vision he had of seeing the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple. That's Isaiah 6.1. This, of course, is a well-known and familiar passage and many sermons and teachings have been done on this passage and rightly so. One of the things which uh, struck me about this story, and it's something which Sinclair Ferguson brought up as well, was the date stamp with which Isaiah introduced the story. He said that scripture dates the great experiences of God's uh, servants in various ways, in different ways. In this particular experience, this particular experience at a most unusual date, says, in the year that King Uzziah died. So a question is this. So what was so significant about the vision occurring in the year that King Uzziah died? Maybe nothing. <laughs> but that is somewhat unlikely. And that is where I think the backstory may shed some light on its significance. Sinclair Ferguson makes the statement that King Uzzi- Uzziah has been aptly described in, uh, as the king who had a glorious reign with a goshly end, and that is so true. The story of King Uzziah's reign is found in Second Chronicles 26. King Uzziah in the Bible is shown. Uh, king Uzziah was 16 years old when he began to reign. He reigned for 52 years in Judah, <clears throat> and Judah was the southern kingdom. You know, by this you had the divided, By this time, we had a divided kingdom. We had Israel to the north and Judah to the south. And he reigned from approximately 790 BC to 739 BC. The scriptures tell us that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord as his father Amaziah had done. King Uzziah sought the Lord during the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of the Lord. This Zechariah was most likely a godly prophet to whom Uzziah listened. But we need to note also that this Zechariah is not the same Zechariah, the minor prophet, um, who came much, much later actually As long as Uzziah made a point to seek God, God made him prosperous. Unfortunately, after Zechariah died, Uzziah made some very bad mistakes. Uzziah in the Bible is shown as a wonderfully intelligent and innovative king under whom the state of Judah prospered. He was used by God to defeat the Philistines and the Arabs. He built fortified towers and strengthened the armies of Judah. And he commissioned skilled men to create devices that could shoot arrows and large stones at enemies from the city walls. He also built up the land. Built up the land, rather. And the Bible says he loved the soil. The Ammonites paid tribute to him and his fame spread all over the ancient world, as far as the border of Egypt. His reign marked the height of Judah's power. Unfortunately, King Uzziah's fame and strength led him to become proud. And this led, his, led to his downfall. The scriptures really sum it up with the statement in Second 2 Chronicles 26.16, says, But when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. His tremendous prosperity, which God brought about and included a lot of help from many skilled men around him, must have gotten to his head. And he had this lofty opinion of himself. He committed an un- faithful act by entering the temple of God to burn incense on the altar something which only the priests could do according to the law eighty brave priests tried to stop him but that made him even angrier it was then that the lord struck him down with leprosy on his forehead the priests rushed him out and he himself rushed to get out of the temple But from that day to the day of his death, King Uzziah was a leper. He lived in a separate palace and was not allowed to enter the temple. His His son, Jothan, governed the people in his place. And this all reminded me of the words of King Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar. I may have pronounced it wrong there, but... In Daniel 4.37 And those who walk in pride he's able to abase and humble. James 4.6 says, but he gives more grace. Therefore it says God opposes, opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Of note though, we'll see and uh, you probably may not have picked up on this uh, Two or three Sundays ago, King Uzziah and his son Zotham, are included in the genealogy of Jesus as Matthew recorded it in chapter 1. Interesting, right? Shows the abundance of God's grace, doesn't it? We don't know how long King Uzziah lived after he was struck with leprosy. But it was in the year which he died that Isaiah had the vision of the Lord sitting on a throne, high, lifted up. But one might ask the question, or just wonder, what's the significance of this vision occurring this year? (laughs) Had God been teaching Isaiah? And us, of course, a few lessons throughout this whole thing with King Uzziah, his rise, his fall, his death. And of course the vision. I would think so. Sinclair Ferguson puts it this way in his book. God had been teaching Isaiah not to trust in the power of leaders no matter how great they are. And how naive we still are today because we do that. Still do that. But now through the vision God was showing him that in days of great crisis and disappointment, behind the scenes of time, the throne of heaven heaven was still occupied. God never vacated it. In the vision, God peeled back the curtains of heaven for just a moment to show Isaiah and us that he has always been on his throne. And in control, he's sovereign over all things. As we have learned in the study of the book of Daniel, earthly kings and kingdoms come and go and will ultimately pass away. But God's kingship and kingdom is eternal and there is no end. Well, with that little bit of background and the backstory of the vision which Isaiah had of the Lord, the scene shifts to God's work in Isaiah himself. In his experience of seeing God sitting on a throne high and lifted up, Isaiah begins to see God in his true light for who he is, who he really is. But at the same time, he also begins to see man and he sees himself, especially in his true colors as well. Ferguson makes the statement that the manifestation of God's holiness carries with it the expression of his holy judgment. The temple is shaken at its foundation and Isaiah himself is shaken and he makes three incredible statements. He says, whoa, is me for I am lost for I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips so let's take a look at these three statements for a little bit (coughs) and here I'm going to read some excerpts from Sinclair Ferguson's (coughs) book so he says Isaiah feels himself lost. The Hebrew word means something like ruined or devastated. Its root is a verb that means to be silent, like the awful rush that follows a disaster before panic breaks out. Isaiah feels as if he were disintegrating before God. The spirits that surround thy throne may bear the burning bliss but as I cannot. We dread this. It it suggests losing control of our own lives. But we also need it precisely for that reason. We want to have our lives in modern parlance together, so to speak, under our own control. But the truth is that we are malformed we can only get it together in an artificial way by the employment of this world's various brands of superglue by contrast what god does yes even to a great man like isaiah perhaps especially to such a man is to take <clears throat> take us to pieces and then reconstruct us that is a recurring pattern in the bible for some, it takes place through the long and slow process of God's providential work. It was thus for Jacob and for Joseph. For others, it happens in worship. This was so for Isaiah. That was the reason why, as a prophet, he needed to feel that his lips were unclean. Isaiah then says, my lips Or unclean. (laughs) Um, With what do you associate the cry unclean, unclean? It was the cry of the leper. Simultaneously confessing of his own condition. And a warning to others that he was unclean. Everyone familiar with Isaiah knows that he's the best preacher in Jerusalem. His lips are pure. They are his strength. But this is exactly the point. It was when he had grown strong that Isaiah's king, Uzziah, had grown proud and was struck down with leprosy. Had Isaiah been damningly critical of as well as deeply disappointed in him? Now he is brought to his own knees to confess I have leprosy on my lips. Unclean, unclean. Worship in the presence of God has the power to undeceive us, doesn't it? We admit our weaknesses. And that is where we think sin lurks more influentially. But here we learn that this is not the case. Sin's most sinister work is in the way it weaves itself so insidiously into her strengths, into our abilities, into her gifts, into the very gifts of nature and of grace that God has given to us. Therein lies the terrible secret and the sobering and <clears throat> shattering truth. Now Isaiah is discovering that he can only be reconstructed to be fit to speak for God, when he has learned that the very instrument God will use must confess his own sin and be cleansed. This explains why he cries, Woe is me. Give me one second. The expression woe in me speaks of Isaiah being overwhelmed with the sense of his own sinfulness and unworthiness. He feels himself cut off or ruined or doomed. But God intervened as one of the seraphim flew to him and touched his lips with a live coal from the altar. And told him that his iniquity and guilt are taken away and his sin is completely atoned for and forgiven based on no merit of his own. This so speaks of the work of Christ on the cross, doesn't it? Through his death, burial and resurrection as one places faith in what Christ has done for us. Isaiah's chapter 6 is justly famous (coughs) but for that reason we tend to read it in isolation from the rest of the book. But the significance of it, at least one statement Isaiah makes, comes home with such force only if we read it in its context from the beginning of the prophecy. And that statement is, woe is me. So with this in mind, let's look at chapter 5. Look back through that chapter and we notice Isaiah's list of woes upon a, a variety of sins and sinners. Woe number one, to those who join house to house, who add field to field until there is no more room and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. Woe number two, woe to those who rise up early in the morning that they may run after strong drink who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. Number three, woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes. Four, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Number five. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes. And shrewd in their own sight. Number six. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine. And valiant men in mixing strong drink. So what is next? Will there be a seventh woe? Sure is. Against whom will Isaiah pronounce it? Number seven, he says, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Having seen himself and everyone else in their true life and having himself been cleansed completely by God based on no merit of his own, he now answers the call of God to be sent to proclaim, to proclaim this message to others. So why did I feel that this is a word for us as leaders of Sovereign Grace Church? <clears throat> Midland, (laughs) first, God's word is for us in a somewhat general sense in that it applies to all Christians and particularly leaders in whatever capacity God calls us to lead. As Christians, we are to learn from the examples in the Old Testament, both good and bad examples. But that's not the primary reason why I think the word is for us as leaders of SGC, Midland. Over the last several years, we haven't exactly been sitting idly by <laughs> During that time, we've studied, we've really continued just to preach God's word. Uh, we've discussed and developed plans and structures and strategies which we hoped would result in some semblance of church growth in terms of breaking out from the 70 to 90 people attendance or less many times, which we had for many, many years. We even renovated the facilities a few years ago. Of course, (laughs) we just finished another one just now. Uh, But we renovated a few years ago to make it more attractive and welcoming to visitors. Over that period of time, we've also seen people leave the church, including some very key people for various reasons. In some cases, they left because things were not happening fast enough for them. And so many other reasons. We have even wondered whether God's plan for us is that we be a small church, but would still have you know some significant influence in sending folks out, as well as supporting works, like our partnership with Barnabas and others. Well, COVID-19 hit. <laughs> and it seems like that became a significant transitional point in terms of uh, God's draw, God drawing and bringing more and more people to the church. A number of folks actually started coming leading up to COVID, but it seems that it really picked up in the midst of COVID. Anyway, back to uh, back around March <coughs> of last year was when I felt that this was a word for us, and I mentioned something to Billy about it. Then during the months following. I think the Lord used the uh, preaching series on Bild and Daniel to confirm that it was something that needed to be shared. This is both an encouragement for us as well as a warning for us. God is the one who is bringing about what we we see happening with the church and attendance and membership. And it is not the result of our strategies and efforts or any grand plan that we had or have. It's not to say that we have no plan or, or role to play. God definitely used us through His guidance, direction, empowerment, etc, even when we were not sure what to do or just the uncertainty about the future. Several new people have shared that they recognize that God is doing something here. <laughs> something special, that's so good to hear. Uh, When people share that and they want to be a part of it. About three or four months ago, Vonda Cothran, who is, I think, here today, one of her fairly new members, went to Pastor Billy and told him that she had a dream about the church. After sharing the dream with him, he asked her to, tell, to come tell me about it. And I kind of knew once he told me that, I knew why he did, did it. In Vanda's dream, though, and this is her words, she saw the sanctuary full of people, the overflow area full, and people were lining up <clears throat> outside to come in, all because of the gospel being preached. Bonda even told Billy that it was not happening because of him. <laughs> uh, so after she shared the dream with me, I told her that it, w- it bore witness with me and with us. But I didn't tell her. I, didn't, I did not say at the time why. <laughs> it did. So the reason it bore witness with me is that many years ago, and this is back in the 1980s. You know, Billy mentioned I've been in the church for close to 40 years or thereabouts. I actually had a similar dream. In the dream, I was standing in the foyer area at the front, at the entrance to the church, probably greeting during the Sunday morning service. <clears throat> the church was filled with people. I opened the front door and looked outside and a lot more people of many cities I can't even pronounce the word, were coming. It seems from all directions. In that dream the thought came into my mind that this was happening because the gospel is being preached and that the Spirit was the one drawing all these people to the church. Interestingly this dream occurred right after a lot of people left the church. (laughs) Man, we've gone through some rough times. For some reason which I never really knew. And we were down really to a handful of families. I would say this number that stuck in my head, we were probably around 25 people at the time. Once everybody had left, you know. Uh, So I told the pastor at the time about the dream to encourage him. And he asked if I could share it uh, with the church that next Sunday morning. So so I did. But in my mind, and sometimes maybe we all think like this, in my mind I thought that droves of people would start coming right away. Like the next Sunday. (laughs) Man, you're just going to see people, you know, in the weeks following, but of course that did not happen, of course. I believe that the Lord wants to use the examples of his dealings with King Uzziah, as well as his prophet Isaiah, to teach us how to lead his church, and the kinds of example we are to be both for the church as well as current and future leaders. So here is something we could learn from Judah's prosperity under King Uzziah. Judah's prosperity under, under this king, his reign, was really not what caused him to be proud. You see, God caused Judah under King Uzziah's reign to prosper for a long time, for decades. He ruled for over 50 years. But it was not until the latter part of his reign that he became proud. It was when he became strong that he became proud. In other words, he started to think that Judah's prosperity was all because of him. His intelligence, his wisdom, his power, his doing all this And that is where the problem was. As long as King Uzziah sought God and walked in humble submission to him, God made him prosperous. tells us that in 2 Chronicles 26, verse 5. As God prospers our church, we need to be careful not to fall into the same trap which King Uzziah fell into. But that is easier said than done, especially if such prosperity continues for a good while. It may be easy to, think, to begin to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to, especially in light of the various gifts he has entrusted to each of us. Paul says this in Romans 12.3, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. He goes on in the passage and he talks about each member having gifts that differ according to the grace given us, and we are to use them according to the proportion of faith which he assigned to each of us, whether it's prophecy or service or teaching, one who exhorts, um, one who is generous, one who does acts of mercy, all these things. The point is that we have no ground to stand on to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to because both gifts and the faith to use them all come to us by God's grace. We can also learn a lot from God's dealings with Isaiah as well. God has grace gifted each of us in special ways and we tend to view them as strengths and indeed they are. But interestingly, Sinclair Ferguson points out that sin's most sinister work is in the way it weaves itself so insidiously into our strengths our abilities into the very gifts of nature and of grace that God has given us. Ferguson goes on to say that Isaiah discovered that he could only be reconstructed to speak for God when he, was, he has learned that the very instrument of God that God will use must confess his own sin and be cleansed. In doing so, we learn to trust and depend on God and not our gifts, abilities, and talents. We're not likely to have the same kind of earth-shattering vision which Isaiah had. But I think the Lord has been doing that work in us over the last several years or longer through the difficulties, hardships, conflicts, a host of other things which he allowed us to go through. Ferguson points out a recurring pattern in the Bible where God takes us to pieces and reconstructs us. For some it takes place through the long and slow process of God's providential work. It was so for Jacob and Joseph and many others. And I think it was so for us as well. But we need to understand that such work is not over, but continues. As the church grows, the Lord willing, we will continue to face many challenges, some new ones which we have not faced before, and some of the same ones which we have faced before. So, how do we face those challenges? we continue to trust and depend on God and not our gifts abilities and talents i think the appropriate way to close this morning is to read the passage from second corinthians 4 verses 1 through 7 so you should have that in your handout it says therefore light shine out of darkness, has shone into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure speaking of the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Well in another book by Sinclair Ferguson <clears throat> entitled The Dawn of Redeeming Grace that was a book that was Pastor Billy gave out for um, it's a Christmas gift, right? Um, he says that when writing this passage perhaps Paul was thinking of the, the story in the Old Testament Gideon, when Gideon went up against the Midianites in Judges 6 and 7. In this story the Israelites were oppressed by the Midianites and the Amalekites and other enemies. And understand this, God allowed this because of Israel's apostasy. Guided by God though, Gideon had reduced his army in stages from 32,000 men to 300 Carrying trumpets and jars with torches inside them, they were vastly outnumbered. Even the 32,000 would have been vastly outnumbered. Um, in fact, in judges 12 I mean, it's judges seven verse 12 says that the Midianites and the Amalekites on all, and all the sons of the East lay along the valley like locusts for a multitude. And their camels were without number, as the sand on the seashore for multitude. Can you imagine 300 men going up against that kind of a thing? Even (laughs) 32,000. Gideon's army, if you call it an army, of 300, was divided into three groups of 100 each, And they surrounded the camp of the Midianites at night. Then on Gideon's signal they smashed the jars. Thereby letting the light shine out. Blew the trumpets and shouted in triumph. The enemy fled in disarray and turned on one another and were utterly defeated. Well listen to what the Lord told Gideon before all of this, Judges 7-2, he says, that's where we find the reason why God told Gideon to reduce the size of the army, ultimately down to 300 men. The Lord says to Gideon, said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. In other words, lest them they would boast that they think they're the ones that did it. There's something about them. So Paul wanted to remind the church in this passage in 2 Corinthians 4 that it is not about the church leaders and the congregation's strengths and abilities which causes blind eyes and deaf ears to open. But it is the gospel which is the surpassing power of God unto salvation. And it is this same gospel which causes those eyes which have been opened to grow in faith and trust in God. So he says in 2 Corinthians 4.7, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. But just as Gideon and his men smashed the earthen jars to reveal the light, so we must be broken for the treasure to be fully revealed. And the passage in 2 Corinthians goes on, <coughs> describes some of the ways and means which God uses to accomplish this. You could read it on, on your own, but just a couple things. We are afflicted in every way, not crushed, perplexed, not driven to despair, persecuted, and all these things. Those are all ways and means that God uses to accomplish his work in us, to humble us, so that those jars of clay would be smashed and the light would shine forth. Hey, Josh, if you could come with, we'll, we'll close at this, this point. <clears throat> so in closing then perhaps <clears throat> you're here today and you don't know Christ as Lord and Savior this gospel I talk about is, it, it may sound foreign to you so I would certainly invite you to come up after the service and to speak to one of our leaders (coughs) who can talk to you about receiving Christ as Lord and Savior. I think Pastor Billy will be here and uh, and Becky will be up here. (coughs) Or you could go to the Lord and talk to him yourself (laughs) because he is there with outstretched arms ready to welcome you as well. You, are, you may already know Christ as Lord and Savior, but something in the message spoke directly to you and you would like to talk with one of the leaders. Or you, you'd like prayer for a need you have. Or maybe your family has. You're invited to come up as well. But you could grab a neighbor as well too and ask that person to pray with you. Amen.